Good morning. We've been looking at demonstrations of supernatural ability and Jesus' miracles, and what we've been saying from week to week is that the miracles tell us about Jesus and they tell us about his kingdom. And so we'll continue to uh, look at the last miracle that we'll consider over the next couple of weeks, the miraculous catch of fish, and we'll try to figure out what it means for our understanding of Jesus and his kingdom and what it means about being his disciple. Uh, look what it says in John chapter 21, 1 through 14. John 21, 1 through 14. <clears throat> says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and... Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Peter knew that it was the Lord. They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It says that uh, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. It goes by different names. It's in the northern part of Israel. It's where these guys are from. And Jesus is from this vicinity as well in the north, Galilee of the Gentiles. The purest Jews were down south. Um, Jesus' appearance to the disciples came at the beginning and the, the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is all the Passover. It is a week-long celebration, and Jesus brackets this celebration with appearances to the disciples. In the beginning of it, he appears to them on a Sunday night, and in the tail end, he appears to them on a Sunday night, bracketing this, and after the week-long feast was over, the disciples, having 
done what many Jews do at the three big feasts. They crowd into Jerusalem. And every, the, the place is absolutely packed for a week. And then people start to go and disperse. And the disciples disperse with them. And they go back to the north. Jesus told them to do so. He said that he would meet them on a mountain. And so he advised them and directed them to do that. So that's what they did. It says in Matthew, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And... Um, when they get there, sometime over the course of probably within a couple of weeks, we don't know exactly. It seems that 40 days later is when Jesus ascended. Within that 40-day period following his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples a number of different times. In fact, I think the Bible records 12 appearances, but those are only the ones that are chronicled. He just taught them and communicated with them, and as we'll see, I was able to eat and, and just a number of different things. Um, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. Then. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Don't know really exactly what's on. Is this is recreational or they don't know quite what to do. They know that they have been commissioned to fish for men. Jesus told them to go to the north, but they're not exactly sure What's going on? Uh, they've been commissioned. It doesn't seem that they're active in ministry. They're not doing a bunch of miracles, it doesn't seem. They had done those things, and they gathered to Jesus when he, earlier, when he fed the 5,000, they had been casting out and doing this and that, and it seems that they're not quite as active for some reason. We don't know if they're going back to fishing or whether this is just we are going to take advantage, but they go at night, and and in that, that's kind of a productive time to go fishing. The reason why you fish at night is that you catch fish. They're fresh to bring to market in the morning. So you bring them to market, you sell them, and then they might have gone back to fishing. We don't know. Um, that night they caught nothing. You know what's notable in the Bible is that whenever Jesus is around, the disciples get blanked. They never catch fish. You know, that night they caught nothing. In the beginning, when Jesus appears to them, they're fishermen. Simon, Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, all these guys are fishermen. And whenever Jesus is around, they never catch anything. And then he says, do this, and then they catch a bunch. So here's, here's my word to the wives. If some of you are going boating and fishing on the 4th of July, and if Jesus shows up and wants to go with you, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I'd pass. You're going to get blanked. And then once he does determine that you're going to catch fish, you'll end up cleaning 150 of them. And so, no, just word for the wise, you might take that with you. Um, just as day was breaking, it says Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, uh, literally what that is, that's just, it's just an expression. It's, it's what we would say when we say, hey, guys. Guys, it's kind of a that type of, uh, or English lads, you know. So it's, hey, guys, uh, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, I'm wondering how they said no. He said to them, cast them on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved 
said to Peter, it is the Lord. When it talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself. This is his gospel. And I don't know if it's bragging rights. I don't think so. He's just identifying himself as having had a special connection, and he speaks of himself without saying I. Um, as is commonly the case in the resurrection narratives, Jesus, they don't recognize Jesus right away. His body is such that it can be seen and touched. It bears the marks of crucifixion. Uh, Thomas was able to put his fingers in the wounds, his hand in the side. Um, Jesus continues to share meals with his followers in this resurrected body. Um, Wonder then, do we eat? Jesus could eat. And then the natural question that some of us who are of the more profane, if we eat, what's the question? Do we go to the bathroom? And do we go to the bathroom in heaven? And then there's all kinds of questions that we won't get into. I'm really fighting. I'm really fighting. I'm biting my tongue right now. I, but I will continue to bite it and we'll move on. Um, Jesus' resurrected body apparently rose through linen wrappings, is able to walk through closed doors. Apparently, uh, yeah, this is what we're looking forward to. They couldn't recognize him immediately, though. There was recognizable once they could see, but something not immediately recognizable. The sense is, too, that he just looks like a guy. He's not glowing. He doesn't have a donut in his head. There's not a, a golden orb on his head. He just looks like a regular guy. Um, it says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, fish laid on it, bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught, just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net, and 153. Peter's in a fishing smock. He is probably in a loincloth when he's out fishing, and then he puts on a fisherman's smock. He gathers it and cinches it so that it's not tangling around his legs, and he swims to shore about 100 yards. And what I read somewhere is that it's not gradually sloping. It's, it, the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee drops off, so he probably has to swim. And he swims in. They, the disciples follow him. Um, the net's full of 153 fish. All kinds of people have tried to figure out what's the significance of 153. And there's all kinds of interesting things people have come up with. And there's things that you can do, the Jews did, with numbers. And so you can mess around with the numbers and create this or that or the other. We're really not exactly sure, except 153 is a bunch of fish. And that is kind of reflective of what Jesus does when he does something. He does it big. Um, I think clearly one of the um, practical reasons is if you say 153 fish, it's a determination that you were there. John writes, he was there. So what he's doing is reflecting his presence at this thing. It's not just a bunch of fish. It's 153. How does he know that? He was there. And, um, and it's a... Um, 
So it, it points to him as an eyewitness and the fact that there's a large number in the fact that the net wasn't torn. All those are attributions to the fact that something special is happening here. The disciples told the net full of fish and the boat to shore. Jesus made a fire. There was already one fish on the fire. He encourages them to come take some of your fish. They clean and throw them on the fire, and then they, and Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Um, first century Jews normally ate two meals, uh, one before work and one later in the day. Sometimes they'd have a uh, early lunch, but this was common. It was, so this was kind of the first meal of the day, and that he invites them to sit down and enjoy it with him. It's just a regular breakfast, but, you know, the significant thing naturally is they're sitting down with Jesus, and he's talking to them, and he's telling them about what's going to happen, and it's reinstituting something that that they are wondering. I wonder where this is going to go. You know, we were in Jerusalem, and then he told us to go north, and this is now the third time. So having gone home, this is his first appearance to them in their home turf. And they sit down with him, and and, um, again, it's probably just weeks from his crucifixion. And uh, this was, it says, the third time. Jesus understands, and one thing we get from here is you follow the way this Jesus works with his disciples. Discipleship is not a once-and-done operation. Um, Interesting thing, Peter's been in this place before. He's been in this sea with Jesus, with a bunch of fish. But his response to Jesus in this occasion and his response to Jesus in the first occasion Show some growth. In fact, what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, I, I was going to just take this in one swoop, but we've really got to look at that conversation. He ends up having a conversation with Peter where he ends up saying, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do, And he ends up, Peter gets a little bit concerned, and, and then um, Peter's going to wonder about, Jesus is going to sell, tell him, I'm going to bring you somewhere you don't want to go. And then Peter's going to say, well, what about John? You know, does he get to hang around? And so they're going to have a discussion in which Jesus fills in some blanks for Peter. And and in the first instance, let me just, just listen. It's not in your worship folder, but this is the first time that this kind of thing occurred. And it has to be in Jesus, Peter's mind. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, To hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, same one. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets or a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Oh. We did that. So, um, 
And Simon answered, We toiled and I took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. And here's Peter's reaction. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus, fell down to Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That was the initial experience with Jesus. Left everything to follow him. Probably two years prior to the, this next experience. And they're going back to fishing. What The point seems to be Jesus, the way he works with disciples, it's not once and done. It's not, I'm going to tell you this once and make sure you learn this. He says it to them one and one occasion. He appears to them in the upper room. He appears to them again. What he understands is that disciples, discipleship is a gradual process. Jay reflected that in the emphasis on remaining. It's not just something that happens at one point. There is an ongoing nurturing of devotion that Jesus understands the way we think, the way we conceive of God, the way we conceive of ourselves, the way we conceive of the world is not changed through one divine impartation. It doesn't happen that way. It's a gradual process of adjusting the way we think. That's why Jesus spent the better part of two years focused on them, with them, eating with them, sitting with them, talking with them. And what ended up happening over that period of time, they ended up understanding how he thought, and they ended up beginning to think like him. That's what the process of discipleship is like, learning to think and reason like the person at whose feet you sit. And it's not a process that is an invasion of a foreign presence that you automatically are not yourself. It's not the way it works. It's a gradual process of shifting the way you see things. And with Jesus, it really shifts the way you see the Father. Completely turns that upside down. You saw him as this, and Jesus is going to say, he's not this, he's that. And over the years, the way they see the Father shifts. And it changes, well, you know what it changes. It goes from thoughts to attitudes to actions. And that's the way it seems to proceed. Thoughts are opinions that we have about God. Attitudes are responses to God's will based on our, ad, on our thoughts about him. And actions are the result of our thoughts and attitudes. Again, I'm going to say that. Thoughts. Attitudes, actions, thoughts are our images, mental representations of God. Attitudes are our responses to God's will based on those mental representations, those thoughts. And actions are the result of our thoughts and attitudes. You remember the parable of the talents gives Things 
to manage to different ones of his workers. And they have heard some things from the people who didn't want this master to be their sovereign. He ends up going to be inaugurated, and they don't like him. His servants, so those are the people in the community. His servants are the ones who serve him. There's people in the community who don't serve him, but they've got some opinions about him. And they don't think that this guy is very ethical. So at any rate, what ends up happening, uh, he gives some talents to each of them to manage. With one, he they manage it well. And, and he says, well done, when he comes back to assess their management. To another, he gave some less, but they ended up managing it. And the focus of the parable is on the last guy. And we talked about this before. What this guy did, he buried the talent. And when the master said, why? He said, oh, I was afraid. I was afraid. That's his. So his action, he buried the talent. His attitude was fear. He was cautious and didn't feel free to play with this. And what was his thought? He said, I knew you were a hard man, reaping what you did not sow and taking out what you didn't put in. That was the thought. You're a hard man. You try to get blood out of a rock. Therefore, the attitude, I was afraid. Therefore, the action, I buried the talent. Now, the interesting thing is, when called to give an accounting, what does the master focus on? What do you mean putting the talent in the ground? What do you mean you were afraid? What do you mean I'm a hard man taking what I... Which one of these three did the master point to? The action, the attitude, or the thought? Which one? The thought. He says, I was a hard man? Is that really who I am? And you know why the parable is like that? Because actions are the result of attitudes. And attitudes are the result of Thoughts. So if Jesus is going to change you, what is he going to do? He's going to change the way you think about the Father. And it will be something over a period of time. Here's what discipleship is. Learning to think about the Father and his will the way Jesus did. Looking at the world as Jesus did. Looking at the Father as Jesus did. Looking at people the way Jesus did. That's what? Being a disciple. A disciple is a learner. One who sits at the feet of a rabbi and patterns their thinking over long-term exposure after him. That's the process of discipleship. And being a disciple means that we remain, he removes, and we, we reproduce. We remain, he removes, and we reproduce. It means that we remain. Jesus says, and this is in your worship folder, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I call your attention to, I'm not going to read it, there is an article taken from um, a not-yet-finished series of 
articles, which I might probably, I'm probably going to pick up again, uh, from the book of John, uh, Face for Grace. That's what he has to match and rhyme. And, okay. Uh, okay. Um, and so this article was about how do we become children of God? And it's taken from, there is, the text is, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, I'm not going to read that. You read that, but I'll make a couple of points as we pass by. Uh, receive Christ in the context has a specific understanding for that culture. When we hear receive Christ, it's most often seen as something that we do in a prayer. It's we receive Christ in a prayer. Jesus, come into my life. And, and in the context, that's not what it's describing. To receive Christ is to receive him the way a disciple receives a rabbi. And it's not just sitting, it's not just come on in, it's come on in, I'm going to sit at your feet, and that initial invitation assumes an ongoing association. That's the way it works with this type of receiving, an invitation that results in an association. It's like if you choose to go to a college, and you decide on the college. That's perhaps a one-time decision. I'm going to go to USF. But that choice assumes an understanding of an ongoing affiliation with the university. You're going to go there, and you're going to sit in a classroom, and you're going to do this, and this is the sense of what it means in the culture to receive Christ. It's He becomes the rabbi, and I look to him to help me understand how to think. And I assume and I understand that he has all kinds of time for me to be able to adjust how I think. He's very realistic. He doesn't expect me to change overnight. The only thing I need to do is I need to stay with him. And I need to be honest enough about my questions to direct my questions toward him and towards others who are with him as well. What did he mean by this? Well, let's, let's talk about it. That's what disciples do. They ask questions. They talk about it. They want to understand. They don't assume that I'm going to get hit with this understanding and it's going to come upon me with this inhabitation from outside. That's not the way it works. It's gradual. It's the process of association and listening and learning and asking. That's what Paul understood and Jesus understands relative to discipleship. Um, to become a Christian then, uh, it's there are some who receive Christ in prayer and go on to see Jesus as a rabbi. They remain. So some who receive remain. Not all who receive remain. Though. Remaining is the critical thing. In fact, I would say the Christian word is not receive, but remain. That's the Christian word. That's what it means to be a Christian, I believe. Um, there is a event that marked the entrance of individuals into the church. It was baptism. And at the time, well, in fact, we'll do a baptism when we do the 
picnic, we'll do a baptism before. Anybody wants to talk about that, I'd be glad to talk with you. We have a person who's being baptized. We might have several, but at least we'll have one. And so what we'll do, then we'll celebrate baptism. And at that time, baptism, in our case, it'll be a nice thing. We'll go out side and we'll baptize the person and then we'll have a meal afterwards and we'll enjoy potluck stuff and whatever people bring and we'll throw footballs around and frisbees and talk and we'll just hang out together. That's not the way it would have gone in that in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, if there was a baptism at a lake or at a sea or at a river, we would think very carefully about what we're doing because our numbers would be noted. Those who were being baptized would be making a decision that would, in many cases, amount to financial suicide. They would be opting out of being able to be a part of the synagogue. If you were a Jew who became a Christian, at a public ceremony of baptism, it's reasonable that there would be people watching. Jerusalem is not a huge place. It would be noted. And you would be targeted. Now, at this point, you wouldn't be a criminal. That comes a little bit later. But I dare say that if you tried to get to the synagogue, which was the center of Community for the Jew. It's the place you hung out together. It's the place you did business. It's the place where you got support if things were going bad. It's, it was the center. And if you tried to go there and you had been baptized, you'd be, whoa, whoa, wait. No, you got baptized this past week, didn't you? Okay, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I want you to imagine then. What if baptism in our country, meant that you opted out of Social Security. Why don't you imagine that? Imagine that by being baptized, it would be noted what you were doing and that you understood that by being baptized, what I am doing, I am not going to be able to benefit from Social Security benefits. How do you think that that would impact baptism in our day? Again, I'm not saying go back to that. All I want to say is there were some natural protections for entering into the church. What would happen? You would go to the synagogue and not be allowed in. So where would you go? Where is the church gathering? And your participation in the church would not be casual. It would be coming in, and really, I'm done. I, I can't go home. I, I, my business is not going to be what it has been. I've lost my neighborhood and my livelihood, and the attendance at this group would not be casual, would it? would be very intense, and they would understand it and come around, and individuals would say, well, you can come over our house and get something to eat on these nights. And, and so what I'm pointing out, again, I'm not saying let's go back to those days. All I want us to understand is that there was some natural protection 
for the following through on the decision to be a Christian. It wasn't something where your whole life was still before you. It wasn't. And so there was a pushing into the church that we don't experience in our day. Again, um, Then and now, though, it's still the same. There might not be as much natural protection for the decision, but remaining still means remaining. It means to remain in Jesus' words. We remain. We make room for his words. Why do we need to make room for his words? Why? Is it something that we have to do? What, he's not going to love us if we do? Or he's going to love us more if we do? Why do we have to remain in his words? Because he's, um, he just kind of wants to be listened to and he gets kind of churlish when he's not listened to? Doesn't like it. I don't like to be ignored. I want you to glorify me. And I don't like it when you don't look at me. Is that? No. What it says, already you are clean because Jesus says in John 15:3, he removes. You're clean because of the word I have spoken to you. But he says, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What do you mean? What do his words do? They cleanse. They cleanse. But imagine, do you have to take a bath? Do you have to take a shower? I took one once. Yeah, I've already done that, done that, checked that. I've, I've taken a bath, taken a shower. I forget when it was. It was back there sometime. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm good. I'm good. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah. I took a bath. I took. See, it's the same thing with his words. Why do we need his words? His words cleanse. We attract a lot of spiritually dirty, again, be careful with this, thoughts. Things that we think about the Father that are not true of the Father. And Jesus' words, what they do is they cleanse. They're like, I forget the name of it. What is, because I, what's that, the program that you run with PC, that Norton's, disc doctor, what ends up happening? When your computer attracts a lot of viruses, you do Norton, and what it does, it identifies the viruses, and it says, do you want to, and then you push and delete, and that's what his word is, what his word does. It identifies thoughts that are not in line with who God is, and it slowly, over time, identifies them and ushers them out the way a virus deals with an infection. It encapsulates it and moves it out of the bloodstream. That's what his words do. It clean. And for Jews, they would have been obsessed with clean from their culture. It was, in fact, what it meant to be holy in Jewish culture is to be separate. So if a sinner sat in that seat, oh, I'm not going to sit there. David, you're in a tough place. This guy was a sinner. He sat in that place, and sinful cooties now are jumping over, (laughs) and you are being cootied. We laugh, but that's not far from the way it was seen. In fact, what ended up happening when I was in culture, I had to, because I patted David on the back, I had to ceremonially wash my hands because I touched common profane things. And what my whole life is in Judaism is staying away from unclean, be, making sure I'm clean. You know, what? And here's what Jesus says to people obsessed about clean. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So this whole clean, unclean thing, forget about it. You're already clean. What do you mean? You're already clean. 
It's already done because you're not clean by not sitting in a seat. You're clean from hearing words and putting, because clean is not about what you do. It's not about your attitude. It's about your thoughts. That's where clean starts. Your thoughts about him. Are they in line with who he is? If they are, your attitudes and your actions are going to follow. It might not be right away, but you hang in there. You hang in there. His words will bring about an ability to be cleansed. Cleansed for what? To be shiny and... What is he making? You know, he's making branches. Branches that stay connected to the vine. And the reason why a branch wants to stay connected to a vine is in order to bear fruit. That's the reason for the clean. The clean is not about so you'll impress somebody. The clean is about being useful. One to and through whom Jesus can exert influence. And what is it that the world needs? It needs to be able to have its thoughts addressed. That's where the world needs help. Um, Jesus, it's, it's, he, he says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. You don't have this. John 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it, cleanses it, so that it may bear more fruit. If you've been used by God, what he's going to do, he wants you to continue to be in his word, because his word will continue to cleanse you and cause you to be more usable. Uh, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You cannot clear, clean your thoughts. He has to. You remain in. You remain. He removes. Make room. That's why, if you haven't gone through them in a while, there's a number of things to go to. Things in the Bible, I, I like commitments. I think that there is something about the text that the commitments are taken from in Hebrews that describe the new priest, the new covenant, and the results of it. If you haven't looked at that in a while, look at that. But at any rate, put promises into your mind. What we know from Second Peter is God makes promises, and they're unconditional on this side of the cross. Get some of those promises in your head. Thoughts about him. What is he doing? And he is promising. And that's where if our mind is in line with his promises, his commitments, rather than his commandments, then we're more in line with what he is. Jesus' words cleanse our minds from false images and replace them with true ones real quick. There's two words for glory. The Old Testament word for glory is a Hebrew word, kabod. Kabod is solid, weighty, heavy. It's something that describes a sovereign who is implacable. You can't get him to change. He's solid. Or a heavy stone. All of that, that's kabod. That's the Hebrew word that we translate glory. He showed them his glory. That's kabod. It has to do with weight. Solid, and the New Testament word for glory is a Greek word, because the New Testament is written in Greek. That word is doxa. Doxa does not mean the same thing. It's translated the same way, and it should be. But the image of doxa, it's a thought or an opinion. It's regard. Doxa is how you think 
about something. Not something that's weighty, but it's a thought or an impression. In fact, if you want to put a difference, kabod would be evaluation. Doxa is valuation. You see the difference between that? Doxa is impression, how he thinks about me. Kabod is how he's assessing me. You know what Jesus comes to do? He comes to replace our sense of God's glory. He moves it from Old Testament kabod to New Testament doxa. We end up understanding the deepest thing that you can entertain is what God thinks about when he looks at you. What is he doing? Is he evaluating? Eight for ten. Five out of ten. One out of ten. Gee, oh boy. Evaluation. Come here. Stand before me. Okay. That's not what he does. It's not a what God does. He comes and the person the son comes alongside. That's what Jesus comes to do. And once you understand it's not evaluation but valuation, you know what we end up doing? Get this. You end up wanting to hang around him. I remember when I went to the University of Pennsylvania and it was my first deep exposure to the Bible. I grew up very religious, but didn't spend much time in the Bible. So I started to spend time in the Bible every once in a while. And I didn't remain in the Word very well. In fact, I would go back week after week to this Bible study I was a part of. Anybody see my Bible? Yeah, Mike, it's right. You left it last week. No kidding. That happened week after week. I'd go out of there without getting my Bible, come back. Anybody see my Bible? It's just right where you left it, Mike. <laughs> and um, now I knew that. Now I'm going to forget why I said that story. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. I had something, I just, oh, just, it's completely gone. It's absolutely gone. It'll come back. Okay. hate it when I do that. We remain. He removes. I'm still trying to get it, but it's gone. It's, it's, uh, we reproduce. Okay. Look what it says in Luke 8. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and then the time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who Hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Um, I remembered. I remember what I, what I forgot to say. I remember once I was in the, uh, when I started to get in the Bible. I was reading Psalm 139, and I told you this before. It says, where should I go from your, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And I remember seeing that, and I said, I don't like that. I really didn't. I remember, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable with, and I told them, I'm not comfortable with you being with me. Because my sense is you're always assessing what I'm doing. I'm very conscious of what I do and don't do right, and I'm always thinking that you're checking. And I remember telling him, and, and I said, you know what? I would really like at some point in my life to be able to read this 
passage about you being with me all the time and breathe and feel warm. I would like to like it. And, yeah, I like it. I like it. Think about commitments and more focused on that. And I found an ability to be more honest with him, more open, being in the word, remaining in it over years. I think about him differently. It's changed the way I think. And it's, yes, geez, I, I don't walk on water and I've got all kinds of issues. But my thinking has changed. And my attitudes have changed. And a lot of my actions are changed. Not all of them. We have room to go, just like you. But remaining does have an impact. Um, what stands in the way of bearing fruit? That's what this last thing talks about. And it talks about two things. The scorching influence of pain and the suffocating influence of worries, riches, and pleasures. What stands in the way of fruit production? The scorching influence of pain. We are averse to pain. And what we end up doing, part of discipleship and bearing fruit, is learning to remain in places that we'd rather not remain if we had the choice. And when you look at the disciples, that's what we find. They are put in places that aren't fun places to be. They have to learn to be honest about what they're going through, and they need to hold God's hand at the same time. Because as we talk about, you cannot eliminate tension in your life. If you can eliminate tension in your life, enjoy it, because it doesn't mean much for your discipleship. If you are a son or daughter, you will have something in your life that you would rather not have. It's what it says. What son is not disciplined by his father? We've all had fathers and they disciplined us. If you're without discipline, then you're an illegitimate child. God's not taking you seriously. And if you have issues in your life, it's because God takes his relationship with you very seriously. Seriously enough to put something in your life that causes you to need to remain in his word. And again, it's progressive. But, that's, but, but we have an aversion to pain and an attraction to pleasure, all of us. We like it. We like to have things in a row. We like to have what we want to have, do what we want to do, and feel what we want to feel. If you are and as you are a disciple, you will not have all that you want to have. It's not possible. Not possible. You will not do what you want to do, both spiritual and unspiritual. You will not feel what you want to feel. If you've got a deep relationship with him, you won't always feel good about it but you learn to remain because even though you don't feel what you'd like to feel, you understand he still walks with you and Jesus sympathizes with you. And that's big. Jesus can sympathize with you. He says, you know what? I know exactly what it is to have uncomfortable feelings. The week before I died, I was conscious of anxiety. And what he says, my heart's agitated. What should I say, Father, remove me from this? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. The reason why Jesus inhabited a body is so that you could understand that he understands you and that you wouldn't be alone in it. You're not alone in it. Jesus sympathizes with you. And we can take that into the presence of the Father. Um, fruit bearing requires an ongoing ability, progressive, 
to go through things and to be honest about it. So be honest about your pain and honest about his commitments. And the reason why you connect with him and be honest with him is not to eliminate anything. It's to endure it. And by the way, you're going to find an ability. You're going to have to do it tomorrow. But the thing you're going through, it's not because he's abandoned you. I want you to listen to me. The thing you're going through, the pain, it's not because you've done something wrong. It's you are his son and daughter. And what it says to those who love him, all things conspire together, are powerful together to bring about a good purpose. Is there anything in your life that you're experiencing that God is not working in order to bring about a good purpose as he defines good? The answer is nothing. Do they all feel good? Absolutely not. If you say that they do, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned. But I know I, I heard a lot of no's. They don't feel good. But are they good? Do they work together for good? Yes, they do. All things do. All things. In the Greek, all means all. It does. But you need to hear that. I need to hear that. I need to hear that. All means all. This relationship, it feels bad. It's not bad. Again, that doesn't mean, you know what I mean? It's thinking about it the right way. Um, how do we know? Brings us to communion. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? This is bulletproof logic. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. There is nothing more important than God could have given than his son. If he gave his son, is it reasonable to assume and to assume that he is not going to withhold anything else? The argument from the greater to the lesser. If he gave the greatest thing, is he going to give the lesser thing? No. Is he holding out on you? No, he isn't. How do we know that? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? He's not holding out. That's what communion tells us. That's what it tells us. So as you come to the table, take the bread, take the juice. Thank you. Think, think about the commitments that he makes to you. And ask him to help you to continue to remain so that he could remove and that you could reproduce. Again, go get the elements. Sit in your seat. You're not going to be told when to drink and eat. But think about these things and then uh, you, we'll have a song and then we'll close our service. Um, dear Lord, we just want to say thank you for what you've done and thank you for the message and thank you for the message in this beautiful day. We just ask that we remember this notion of remaining and how important it is for us as believers to be able to hold our lives and our attention and remain in the truth that you are a loving, forgiving, welcoming Father. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.